Bible reading for today is from Isaiah 9, uh, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honour Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as the people rejoiced at harvest, as warriors rejoiced when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Good morning, everyone, again. Uh, We're we're in our our second week this week uh, of our Christmas series called Rejoice. Um, Who's kind of done all the Christmas shopping? Everything's kind of done and dusted. Is there anyone in that boat? One one hand? Well done, Patsy. That's amazing. And who's still kind of, we've got got a week left to prepare. Yeah, I'm kind of in that boat as well. I'm in that boat as well. Um, There's a lot going on, isn't there? A lot going on uh, in this week leading up to Christmas. Uh, And great uh, to be able to, on Sunday uh, this morning, uh, take the time to reflect on and think about what the birth of our Saviour Jesus into the world means. Uh, Last week, we were reminded to to look up, uh, weren't we, past the the busyness that December can bring, uh, to look at Jesus, the one Christmas is all about. And we we read of Zechariah's song in Luke chapter 1, of his great joy at what the birth of his son, John the Baptist, signified. The Saviour was coming into the world. Well, this morning, we're, we're jumping back hundreds of years in the storyline of the Bible to Isaiah. And now, Isaiah was a prophet or a mouthpiece of God for the nation of Israel. We're looking at chapter 9 of Isaiah this morning. And now, December is, is the time where we start dusting off all the old classic carols, isn't it? We get to sing another carol uh, later on this morning. And I really love carols. Now, for a lot of us, it, it often doesn't feel like Christmas until we've been able to sing some carols together, does it? But I wonder, though, if you've ever misheard or misunderstood some of the lyrics in some of those carols that get sung. I have some examples that are going to pop up on the screen. The first is from the song, The First Noel. Um, there's this line in that song that goes, Born is the King of Israel. You know, born is the King of Israel. Uh, but one of the misheard and then the kind of missung versions of this line uh, from, comes from a young child. And they rendered it uh, this, Barney's the King of Israel. So Jesus, also known as Emmanuel, or Barney, apparently. Or there's this line from Away in a Manger as well, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes. It's a really nice kind of peaceful line. Uh, one child possibly believing that there'd been a problem with the air conditioning in the stable and it was, it was going a little bit too hard, rendered this line, the cattle are blowing the baby away. <laughs> or there's this line from Joy to the World, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Or one child rendered this line, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Uh, dental hygiene apparently was a big deal 2,000 years ago. 
for me, though, there's one carol in particular that has a line in it that I, I always misunderstood growing up. Uh, I didn't change any of the words in the carol. I just really misunderstood what the line was saying. And the line comes from the song, Silent Night. It goes, Silent night, holy night, Son of God loves pure light. And in my mind, I'd hear this line and I'd think for some reason that it meant that the Son of God, that, that Jesus, as a baby, He just loved pure light. That's what He was all on about. I'd be singing that line and I'd just kind of imagine Joseph uh, dimming the lights in the stable and Mary saying, Joseph, he's scared of the dark. Turn the lights back on. He likes pure light. He loves pure light. Might be the only one who made that mistake. Uh, but of course, that's not what the line is getting at at all, is it? See, what that line means is something incredible, something life-changing. It means that the Son of God, Jesus, uh, is love's pure light. Is the pure light of love, the one who shows what God's love really is to a world that is in darkness. Now, the theme of darkness and light really stands out in our passage this morning, doesn't it? We read in verse 2 this morning that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And as we also read, this is cause for great rejoicing. And it's cause of great rejoicing for us as well. And it's all because of what this light that has dawned means. Now, to understand and kind of get the significance of this in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, we, we actually need to ask the question, what was going on for the Israelites in Jerusalem at this stage of history? Uh, what, what did this mean for them? Why was God speaking to them through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9? And to do this, we need to actually duck back a little bit into Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, so if you have a Bible in front of you, you might want to flick to Isaiah chapter 7 and have a bit, of a bit of a history lesson as we do so. And then after this, we can grapple with the significance of this light that has dawned for us today. But if you've got an outline or a leaflet in front of you, you'll see that point one says, a people walking in darkness. Uh, you'll see a, a map pop up on the screen behind me. Hopefully that's worked. It has. Awesome. Um, well, this, this, is, this is a map that has some details uh, around the expansion of the Assyrian Empire. Starting from about 745, there was, there was a king with a really weird name called Tiglath-Pileser III. It's a bit of a mouthful. He came to power. And at the point in history that Isaiah 9 that we read this morning is referring to, around 734 BC, this, this Assyrian king had begun to push out the boundaries of his land in conquest of all the surrounding nations. Now included in these nations that Assyria intended to conquer were both the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria, that's the green just up there, and the southern kingdom of Israel right down there in Jerusalem. Now uh, in response to Assyria's rising power, uh, there was another king, a uh, king of Aram called Rezin in Damascus, right there, uh, who formed an alliance with the king of the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. Uh, you can see Assyria right at the top was going to kind of start moving down and taking over the place as they went. So in response, that they, they formed this alliance, the, the king of Aram and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel in Samaria. And together they tried to force the hand or someone called King Ahaz, who was the king of the southern kingdom of Israel and Jerusalem, to, to join their alliance, so that it would be three nations against one nation. They'd be able to stop Assyria. Now, Ahaz and the Israelites in Jerusalem, they were in a bit of a bind. They were in a pretty tough spot. See, on, on the one hand, Assyria was a really strong nation who looked set on, uh, on taking control of, of the whole known world. It was a growing empire. 
But on the other hand, uh, Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel were, were literally knocking on the door to Jerusalem, having put the city of Jerusalem under siege to try to force his hand to join them. It was either that or more likely, and this is what we read in chapter 7, that they were going to kill Ahaz and put someone else on the throne who would do what they said. So what was Ahaz supposed to do? Well, in Isaiah chapter 7, we read that God is not blind to what is going on in his world. He's not blind to what is happening to his people. So he sends the prophet Isaiah to speak with King Ahaz and to tell him uh, to trust in God, to stand firm, to tell him that God's got this, to tell him that nothing would come of the head of Aram or the head of Samaria standing against the king of Judah who God had set on his throne. God says in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 4, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. See, all throughout history, or the history of Israel, God has kept them safe from all the other nations when Israel had trusted in God and turned to and followed him. And it's not going to be any different here. So God says to Ahaz through Isaiah, even though they're plotting your destruction, and even though they want to put someone else on the throne, he says, it's on the screen behind me, it will not take place. It will not happen, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin, only a human. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son, only a human. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. What are these temporary human kings compared to the eternal and sovereign God who's promised safety and refuge to his people and to their king Ahaz? The God who's proven time and time again throughout history that he is trustworthy, that he is worthy to follow. Stand firm by trusting in this God to deliver you. This is what Ahaz is told to do. And again, Isaiah speaks to Ahaz in verse 10 of chapter 7 and says, Ask the the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. See, God is prepared to go to the deepest depths or the highest heights in order to help and in order to deliver his people. And you think, wow, what an awesome God is this, who looks on his people and offers salvation where there is no way out. And all he calls for is for them to trust in him. You think, surely this is the relief that Ahaz and the Israelites in Jerusalem are waiting for, right? But Ahaz responds in Isaiah 7 verse 12, and he says this. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And they're really really pious and and, and good-sounding words, aren't they? They're, They're words that sound quite flattering. But, but they're anything but flattering. See, they're words spoken out loud that sound good and true, being that no one should test God and no one should test God. But they are words that reveal a heart that is not willing to, to follow or turn to God, despite God's having proven again and again that He is trustworthy and can deliver. These are actually words spoken that leave God on the shelf for when Ahaz wants to use Him for His own purposes down the track. See, Ahaz has multiple options open before him. He's in a position where he can either give in and form that alliance with Aram and Samaria and put his his trust in them, hoping that they don't kill him. Or he can call on Assyria for aid and become a vassal king and put his trust in Assyria and hope that they don't kill him. 
or he can respond to the promises of God by putting his trust in him. Ahaz has these three options. And he's weighing up which one is most likely to bring out Ahaz on top. And by saying, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test, Ahaz is saying, actually, I don't trust you. I'm going to keep my options open. I'm going to see what happens down the track. I actually don't want you around at this point. So he relegates God to a shelf for when he wants to use him for his own purposes. It's very human, isn't it? To say to God, just, just stay over there until I need you. I think I can find a better offer. If you know how the story goes, Ahaz leaves God on the shelf and thinks trusting in Assyria is the best option. He says, no, God. Yes, Assyria. And it ends in destruction. It ends in darkness. If you flick forward a chapter to chapter 8, verse 21 to 22, just before our passage for today in Isaiah chapter 9, we read about what happens for those who, who ignore God and keep ignoring Him. For those who put Him on a shelf and not where He should be, being at the forefront of our lives, to be listened to, to be trusted in. We read in verse 21 of chapter 8, should be on the screen as well, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their gods. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. This is the kind of darkness where there's no hope, where there's no solution to the brokenness so obviously on display inside of people and outside in the world as we look around. The kind of darkness you can't escape because you've picked something else and put it in God's place. You've said, no thanks, I don't want you to God. And are now left facing the consequences for it. You see, throughout Isaiah 7 and 8, we read of what will happen to Israel because of the way they treated God. There are people who are separated from God, who are ignoring God, are people who are under His judgment with nothing that they can do about it. So God hands them over to Assyria as a tool of this judgment. He says in Isaiah 7 verse 17, The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. It's strange, isn't it? You see, that Ahaz and the Israelites are actually getting what they want. They say no to God because they want Assyria and not God, thinking that Assyria can provide a safety and security and a deliverance that they can't find in God. But you can't put God on the shelf that way. You can't keep him as a possible option. God says, you're either with me, and man, if you are, you gain absolutely everything, or you're against me, and you lose everything. Now, Ahaz tried, tries to mask his intentions towards God, doesn't he, with words that sound really pious and really holy. But the thing about God is that he sees straight through words, straight through actions, straight through to the heart and what lies there. And what lies in Ahaz's heart is this insistence on rejecting God because there might be something better, even though the only thing waiting outside of God is darkness, is hopelessness, is judgment. See, the lie is shown for what it is, and there's no way back for it from it. And it's, it's the same with us as well. Pious words, good actions don't mask our heart to God. They don't cover up things we've done in the past that we're ashamed of. They don't eventually outweigh that persistent rejection of God that comes about because we believe there might be something better out there than Him. 
See, this is in all hearts everywhere. It's what sin is. See, Ahaz here is providing a, a bit of a mirror for us to look into, not providing a character for us to scoff at and think, what an idiot, as much as we feel that as we, as we hear and read how he's acted. See, we, we deserve to be walking in darkness forever, as much as the Israelites were told that they would be walking in darkness. But in Isaiah chapter 9, the passage that we read out this morning, well, God doesn't leave things the way that we left them, messed up and broken and in utter darkness. God brings a solution. He deals with the darkness. God does, not people, not you or I. And it's all because a light has dawned. That's point two. We read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, that even though darkness and distress reigns, when we cut ourselves off from God, well, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. See, these were the lands that Assyria first kind of took over as they lived under God's judgment. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And then we read, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. See, any, any of the youth in the room, has, has this happened to you during school holidays? You know, you'll be fast asleep. Uh, it's maybe midday. And then mum or dad comes into the room and they say, you've been asleep for way too long. It's time to get up. And they kind of rip back the curtains in your dark room. Light just kind of spills in everywhere. You kind of go, oh no, this is terrible. It's so bright, you need to shield your eyes. When these verses, God is saying, wake up. It's time to come back to me. Don't stay in darkness. I've made a way for you to come back to me. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, when mum or dad pull back that curtain, the light causes a fair bit of groaning, right? But here, though, as the light dawns and as people see it, causes rejoicing. Read in verse 3, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. You know that feeling of relief after an almost endless job has been finished, the feeling of that burden having been lifted. For our uni and high school students, the joy at handing in that final assignment or those at work, that the joy of the year-long project finally being complete, or the proposal you've been working on tirelessly being accepted, just the relief and the lifting of the burden, the joy that it brings. Well, for those in Isaiah 9 verse 3, this joy is likened to the harvest being complete, of provision for their families, of being sustained, the, the relief of that. Their joy is likened to warriors at the end of battle who had fought to survive and have won. They're dividing the spoils, and not just for a season, it's ongoing. And verse 4 continues, For as in the day of Midian's defeat you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. So Isaiah points back to God in the book of Judges, in chapter 6, and how he brought an end to the oppression of Israel under the hands of the Midianites. How God did this, not people. See, Isaiah is speaking of no longer being enslaved, of no longer being overburdened. And it's all because God has acted. 
with the victory so complete that in verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. A victory is so complete that warriors, they don't need their armour anymore. It can all be burnt. It can all be done away with. See, the relief, the joy that is described in this passage, the burdens being lifted, it's all because a light has dawned. Next Sunday, we, we remember the birth of Jesus, don't we? The one who is that light. The light to all the world that the darkness cannot and will not overcome. The light that is dawned that we're pointed to in Isaiah chapter 9. So Isaiah writes in verse 6 that all this rejoicing, all this relief has come because a child is born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, here is a king that is not like Ahaz. He is the king who Ahaz wasn't. The ruler who no one could be but him. See, he's the ruler who takes away burdens, leaving rejoicing in his wake. Not more burdens and not judgment for those who turn to him. He brings salvation. And the titles given to him that we read represent his his characteristics of leadership, though you'll be surprised to see that Barney is not listed on them as well. But he is a wonderful counsellor. He is the one who knows how to win the battle, that, that master of strategy, the one who actually knows how to lead his people well. And his mighty God... He is divine. He is all-powerful. He is God with them. He is eternal Father, meaning that He fosters and cares for those who are in His kingdom and are one of His people, as kings were supposed to do. And He's the Prince of Peace, of peace, a king like no other, a king who won't lead His people astray or, or to harm or into darkness, but out of it. King who will keep them safe, and it's forever. So we read in verse 7 of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. His rule is eternal. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And how will it happen? Well, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See, Isaiah writes of a future event to the Israelites to tell them how God will act toward them, even as they sit under his judgment. That there is a way to be saved. That through a child who was yet to be born, God would deliver them. And next weekend, as I said, we remember how God has done what he said he would do. This child was born 2,000 years ago, a light to the world. We read in John 1, verse 4 and 5, that in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, if darkness is the result of sin in the world and our rejection of God and represents our separation from God and the judgment that sits on our shoulders, well, then Jesus is the exact opposite of that, isn't he? Coming into a world of darkness... He deals with sin and rejection of God. He brings us back to God and has done it by taking our burden of judgment from our shoulders onto his own. The king of Isaiah 9, 
becomes burdened by the weight that rests on the shoulders of his people. It no longer rests on us because Jesus deals with it, brings us out from darkness to light, to his perfect kingdom, free from the brokenness of our sin and of this world. And Isaiah writes, this is cause for great rejoicing, great rejoicing amongst the people who follow this king. That's point three. Now, the response of those that Isaiah speaks about in chapter 9, it is rejoicing, isn't it? And this rejoicing is ours to take part in, rejoicing in a saviour who is the light in a darkened world that points the way back to God and to forgiveness of sin and life. I broke my arm in year three by falling off of a scooter and I remember being in a hospital and someone, I think it was a nurse or a doctor, they told me I was on laughing gas or something like that for the pain. They kept looking down at me lying there on the bed and I was absolutely miserable and they kept saying, give us a smile give us a smile. And I was so far from feeling like giving anyone a smile. I was absolutely miserable. I'd just broken my arm on holiday. I had to go home away from holiday, away from friends. I was miserable. And this person kept saying, give us a smile. Verse 3 this morning reflects on how God has enlarged or grown a nation and increased their joy. We read of people rejoicing before God and as those who've been saved through Jesus and putting our trust in Him, That rejoicing is ours to take part in. This is our king, the king who loves us and calls us into his perfect kingdom, out of darkness and into light. Uh, But I can't really stand up here and say, let's all feel joy together. I could. Some of us will feel that. But for some of us here, you would possibly have a pretty similar response to me when I'd broken my arm in that hospital bed. Things might be going pretty hard for you at the moment. Maybe that joy is a pretty hard thing to feel. What I do want to say, though, is let's remember. Let's remember and rejoice in the God who we know. You know when you're looking through an old photo album or scrolling through photos on your phone, how how the memories that are attached to those moments surface as you're looking through them. Well, Ahaz in Isaiah 7 chose to ignore the God who'd been at work throughout all of history to care for and love his people. It's like he'd, he'd forgotten who God is. He wasn't flicking through the photo album anymore. When he's faced by the stresses and troubles of life, he forgets God, forgets that he's there. And he chooses this temporary solution that's right in front of his face, but it just brings sorrow, not joy. But in these verses this morning, we've read about how God has acted toward a people who don't deserve mercy, toward people who don't deserve grace. We've read about how God has acted toward people who are overburdened, who are restless, who are weary, to people who are in desperate need. He's acted out of a love so great that he will give up everything to come to you and to be burdened in your place. We saw a beautiful photo of, of Harriet Hodge this morning, didn't we? Doesn't it just, just blow your mind that the God of the universe would come to us like that, as a baby? He gave up absolutely everything to save us, to serve us, even his life. So you remember this, and remember what it means, that you have a God who has taken you from darkness to light, Paul the Apostle in the letter to the Colossians in chapter 1 verse 13 says, 
He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are rescued, and He will not let you go. So spend time remembering how God has acted toward you. Think about your life. Think about how you've seen Him at work in your life. Think about the first time you heard and responded to the good news of who Jesus is. Listen to the songs that we sing about Him. Read about the acts of our God and Saviour in Scripture and be reminded of how He has acted for you. And let that produce in you thanksgiving and praise as you remember and are led to rejoicing in Him. In the busyness of the next week and in the lead up to Christmas, will you take time to do this? We're actually going to sing now Uh, And and remember together the grace of our God, uh, that He has made a way for us to be saved from living in darkness, to be able to walk into the outstretched arms of our loving Saviour. Let's remind each other of of His goodness to us as we sing His praise. But first, let me lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You that a light has dawned. We praise you for your son, Jesus, who was born into this world to bring salvation from sin. Thank you that he is the king who takes our burdens and does not give us burdens. In the busyness of Christmas in this next week, with all the things going on in our lives, Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect on what it means that you sent your son, Jesus, to us. We pray that you would help us to respond in faith, in trust, that you would help us be led to rejoicing, Lord, in who you are as our God, a God who loves us, a God of grace, a God who saves. Amen.